The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is fantastic. It's a it's about Dragnet Nation, which I'm going to be telling you more about. But, you know, this week we are off to Washington, D.C. on March 5th. And our wonder, one of the wonderful keynote speakers will be speaking at the International Association of Privacy Professionals Washington, D.C. Summit on March 7th. And we are so excited because she is joining us this morning. And her name is Julian Agwin. And let me tell you a little bit about her. She is the author of this wonderful new book, Dragnet Nation, A Quest for Privacy, Security, and Freedom in a World of Relentless Surveillance. Uh, She also is the author of a previous book, Stealing My Space, and she's an award-winning investigative journalist for the independent news organization ProPublica. And from 2000 to 2013, she was a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where she was on the team of reporters awarded the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of corporate corruption. She also led a a team covering online privacy that was a finalist for a 2012 Pulitzer Prize. And she lives in beautiful New York City, and she is joining us. And we are just so thrilled to have you, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I'm so looking forward to meeting you in person in just a couple of days. So this is very exciting, and we know you're going to do a great job. You know, we have there's probably going to be about 2,000 people there at that privacy conference. So you're going to have a lot of people get a chance to hear you, and we're thrilled that you're with us today. So tell us, why is it that you wrote this book, Dragnet Nation? You know, Mari, I was um, investigating privacy issues for the Wall Street Journal for several years, and I'm a technology reporter, and I felt like as I wrote more and more stories about how technology was enabling more and more surveillance by corporations and the government, I worried that I was simply creating a sense of hopelessness and fear as people read these stories and thought, oh, gosh, I can't do anything about it. So I decided to investigate whether I could do anything about it. So this book is really my investigation into whether we can regain control of our data in the world we live in where it is data about us is flowing everywhere. Exactly. And you have some incredible little stories. I mean, like the one you started out in your book, I think 
that would be um, a really good one to talk about that uh, the story of Sharon Gill and uh, Bilal Ahmed for medical privacy. You want to just share that little story? Oh yeah. So Sharon and Bilal are these two people who met because of the power of the internet. The great thing about the internet is that it lets people who have similar um, ideas and interests meet, even if they don't live anywhere near each other. So Sharon. Uh, lives in the United States, and Bilal lives in Australia, but they both were struggling with depression. And so they met on a medical patient board for people who were depressed, and they were talking with each other. But then they found out that their conversations were being monitored. They, the, a big media monitoring firm called Nielsen, uh, which actually most people know through TV ratings, but also does um, online monitoring, had basically broken into this patient forum and was, quote, scraping the data from it. Mm. And the the people who ran the forum caught them, told them to stop, they stopped, and they later apologized for their behavior. But Sharon and Bilal were shocked when they got a notice from the owners of this website saying, look, this happened and we turned it off, but we also want to inform you that not only that, that we are scraping the information oh, from the yeah. website and selling it. And so we just want to remind you in case you didn't read that tiny fine print when you joined. <laughs> um, and so that to me was such a story of today's world, which is, yes. you know, we imagine all the threats of privacy to be external hackers and, and this and that, but actually they're also the people you think are protecting you are also the people who you have to worry about because in, hidden in that fine print is often something about how they may be using your data in a way that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, and Julia, you know, these these sites where people can kind of share ideas, and like you said, these both of these people were kind of maybe embarrassed to talk with their friends about it, so they had people who had a similar sensitivity that they find across the world, and then they find out that this website is selling to pharmaceutical companies, you know, so they... I think that's the problem is that people don't read the privacy policies and and they're so hard to read as it is. I mean, people don't even know what they they mean half the time. But even if they do, they they're they're just, you know, they don't spend the time to read it because they're thinking this is so wonderful. But the problem is, is how do these free sites make their money? That's the issue, right? This is the problem, right? We don't we we don't want to pay for anything, right? So we have to blame ourselves somewhat for the problem we have, which is we want all these services for free, and then they have to figure out a way to make money. And one way to make money is to offer advertisers the opportunity to find out ever more and more about you in order to sell you things. And that turns out to be the main business model of the Internet right now. And especially with all these medical sites, People have not a clue. They're, you know, they're talking about hepatitis C or that they have or something that they want to keep quiet that they don't want people to know about. And they think that they're, you know, using this and communicating and they have not a clue what, you know, happens until they start getting this target marketing. So let's talk about this is a wonderful book, by the way. You're such a great writer. I really enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk about what you mean by Dragnet Nation. So what I mean by Dragnet Nation is that we're now living in a world where uh, personal data is being scooped up indiscriminately. So when I talk about a Dragnet, I really mean like the way that 
drag nets are actually just nets. You know, you put in the right. water to scoop up fish, and then you throw away the fish you don't want. And right. Ones you you do want, and that's what I, my vision of what's happening right now with personal data is that the technology exists and is cheap enough and powerful enough that both the government and commercial entities are basically scooping up everything, and then they're figuring out later what they want out of it, right? This is actually very much what we've learned from the Snowden revelations, which exactly. is that NSA is taking everything, and they're like, but don't worry, we only look at the, you know, we only take the fish we want out of it. Right. And, and the question for us is, is that the world we want to live in? Because the problem is that our data is sitting in all these places, and we don't know in the future how it's going to be used against us. Exactly. So let's talk about some of the personal consequences of living in that kind of a dragnet nation. Well, it's, I believe that some of the consequences could be dire, um, but they range from the very, you know, every day, which is, you know, everyone has probably seen the targeted ads that you get online when you search for one thing. I, once I was remodeling the house, I got a I was looking for a bathtub, and then bathtub ads followed me around for a month, right? <laughs> so that, that kind of thing, I think we've all become used to the idea that once you kind of do something online, there may be consequences that you will see later. But what people don't realize is that that's not just being used for ads. It's increasingly being used to, um, in, in other ways. So we did a study at the Wall Street Journal where we showed how Staples, this big office supply store, was selling it's staplers and other office products at very different prices based on the information that they had about you based on your what your computer automatically sends to um, their computers. They would make a snap judgment about where you lived and how much you might willing be willing to afford. And I think that is going to become more and more the norm, that not just the ads will be tailored to you, but your prices could be tailored to you. Exactly, exactly. And, and when you think about all of the other information that they can be putting together and sharing, um, you know, are you maybe not going to be able to get a home loan or you're not going to be able right. to get a car and yet not be able to get a job? I mean, it, it is pretty frightening. And so what are some of the societal things that, that you see, you know, any changes in, in our behavior as a society? Well, so... Um as we learn more and more about how much we're being watched, what is already starting to happen is that we're worrying more about what we say and do, right? So once you know you're being watched, you start to act a little differently. And so what I'm concerned about is that people are going to be afraid to research topics that might see if they want to learn about something, but it you know might end them up on a watch list or if right. they want to just you know investigate. Um, something, but then later change their mind that they're not interested in a particular religion or or something, that we're going to end up censoring ourselves. And that is my biggest concern for society as a whole, is that we really value freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom of association. And I think if we don't find a way to assure ourselves that we can have those freedoms while being monitored, then we run the risk of changing the very fundamental nature of our society. Exactly. What about anonymizers? You're, you're a technology writer. What do you think about these, um, you know, surfing anonymously? Do you think, you know, how, how, how would that help us? So I tried a whole bunch of different ways to be anonymous in my book, ranging from using technology to, in fact, actually setting up a fake identity. And 
I found that, you know, they were all sort of moderately successful, but there's nothing that I could do that was foolproof. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody really wanted to find me, they basically could. And there's a lot of literature out there that shows that it's getting harder and harder for people to mask their true identity because the fact of the matter is this phone that we carry around with us all day, right. <laughs> every day, and our locations are very unique. So basically it turns out that it only takes four locations to really perfectly pinpoint you. <laughs> and so once somebody gets four locations from you, they know it's you because you're the only person who does those four things. Right. So it's very hard in our world to be anonymous, and I think that's one of the things we have to figure out a way to protect. Yeah. Now, I know that you carry one of those burner phones and a wallet lined with metallic film. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> right. One of the ways I tried to be anonymous was to carry a disposable prepaid uh, phone, sometimes known as a burner phone, that is, was not tied to my identity, right? And I also carried it in this um, pouch you're talking about, which is known as a Faraday cage. It's basically a bag lined with metal, and when you put the phone in the bag, it isn't um, in communication with the cell tower. So therefore, you're basically off the grid at that moment. And that allows you the nice thing of being off the grid for a while, and then when you want to look at it, you can open it up. But you're not, al- you're not always mapping your location to the cell phone company and to whoever else might be listening in. Um, the thing about carrying the burner phone and using this bag was that it, it obviously it really limited my ability to use the phone. Right, <laughs> so right. As much as it protected my privacy, it was actually basically non-functional. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's like it defeats the whole purpose of me being reachable. I mean, the reason right. I want a phone in large part is because I'm a mother and I'm worried if something happens to my children, I want to be reachable. Exactly. So my phone is in a bag and they don't even know the number to it because it's my <laughs> fake number. Yeah. You know, that is not that helpful. So it turned, basically, with this, this particular experiment, I felt was a failure of, I wasn't able to obtain that much privacy without giving up a huge amount of convenience and modern living in the modern world. Yeah. I mean, even if we turn off the cell phone, of course, then we, we're back to how, how no one can reach us, right? We're back to that same thing, yeah. but that even then they can see us. So, yeah, I, it, what, what scares me about what's coming is also the smart refrigerators and, um, you know, the the smart meters. Uh, for a long time, I fought even putting a smart meter on my house. I was the only one on the block for a year that kept refusing San Diego Gas and Electric to do it. And the only reason I allowed them to do it is because um, on Kavukian, and I don't know if you know who she is. Yep. She, yeah, privacy. She said to me, she started consulting with them and they sent out somebody to to help me um, tell me all the things that they were going to do to protect my privacy. <laughs> oh, but, wow. And and she was able to convince them to do it in a privacy-friendly yes, way? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, she did. It's lucky I'm not with Southern California Edison because they didn't hire her. But yeah, that's the only reason is because I trust Anne and know her and she's been on my show and we're friends. But um, I still am very fearful or very concerned about the smart grid for a variety of reasons. And then thinking about a smart refrigerator. I mean, talk about somebody deciding that they're not going to give me uh, health insurance or life insurance because of what I might have in my refrigerator uh, right. worries me a bit too. What do you right. think about that? I agree with you. The, the, the challenge, I think, for all of us is that we really, at least I, really want actually my refrigerator 
to order the milk for me. You know, this utopian <laughs> dream where your devices can do the work for you. Yes, I'm lazy. I would love my refrigerator to do that for me. But what I also want is I want the safeguard that my data won't be used against me, right? And yeah. I actually think that's not so much to ask, right? Because, you know, we have cars. We drive in them. They're very dangerous vehicles in some ways. But we have a lot of safeguards built into that, right? We have a law forcing us to wear seatbelts, and we have speed limits, and we have, you know, roads, and they're maintained, and all such things. And I think what we see in the data economy is that really that infrastructure to protect us is not really there yet. We're one of the only Western nations that doesn't have a baseline privacy law to allow us to see the data that's held about us, to correct it, to find out how it might have been used against us. And so if we had some layers of accountability built into the system, we might not be as scared, right? But right now, it really feels like the Wild West. Yes. And well, the, the big difference between us and the European Union is that they that we're opt out and they're opt in, meaning they are not supposed to collect personal data and use it for any other purpose without you consenting ahead of time. Whereas in our country, we have the, the opposite that they can do anything they want with our <laughs> with our stuff, uh, with our personal information, unless we opt out. We right, but a- you know, the thing is, we can't always opt out. Right. So I made a list of 220 data brokers that I've identified. Right. Part of the list that you have worked on at the Privacy Clearinghouse, and then also other lists that I found, and I, it was a lot of work to make this list. Yes. And then I looked through to see how many of them I opt out of. It was less than half, right? Because we don't even have a law requiring them to let us to opt out. And we so, don't even so have we a law. We aren't yep. even a fully opt-out economy. That's even the worst part of it. Yes, and you think about Axiom, some of the big guys, right? Axiom and LexisNexis and all right. the, these big companies that have a ton of stuff about us. I mean, yes, we can get our information from Experian and Equifax and TransUnion, but that's not all of the stuff that's being collected by the big, big guys. And we don't have a right to get that. We don't have a right to see it. And, you know, I see that kind of stuff all the time because I deal with victims of identity theft. And and that's a, a huge issue when all this data is collected and it's not even about you. You know, it's, a, it's right. A, so, it's, a, it's a exactly. It's some sort of error, yeah. Or it's about yeah. You know, somebody has stolen you and impersonated you. Right. I agree. And this, you know, in terms of people who will let you see your data, of that two hundred twenty data brokers that I looked at, only less than uh, twenty five would let me see my data. Right. So that's an that's like ten percent. <laughs> yes. And so we are in a situation where how can we trust? These people, they won't let us see it. Right. They won't let us take our data out, and they won't tell us what they're doing with it. So this doesn't engender any trust. Exactly. And, you know, how many errors there are, like with credit reporting agencies, which we do have a right to see it. You know, the um, the PERG the, has done studies to show that, you know, 70% of credit reports have errors, and about 20, 20 to 25% of those are enough to keep you from getting credit or a job. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, even if we, if we, it's so important to be able to see so that we can correct it. Now, when you got that 10%, Julia, did you find any errors in there? Oh, my gosh, so many errors. <laughs> it was actually kind of hilarious. So my data ranged from actually fairly accurate. Um, the, the stuff that was accurate was my name, address, property records, the very traditional sort of LexisNexis 
um, type data yeah, was yeah. actually pretty accurate. In fact, it was a little, a little scarily accurate. I don't know why anyone needs to know the number of my dorm room in college, oh my but God. it's in there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. my goodness. Yeah, so that was uh, scarily accurate. But then, actually, on the other end of the spectrum, there was wildly inaccurate stuff. So one of my credit reports, I think it was TransUnion, said that I worked for a beverage distributor, huh. um, which I've never worked for. Wow. And there was um, one of the there's these newfangled companies that are in, into um, alternative credit score type things. They um, one of them called eBureau uh, believed that I was like an uneducated single mother, and <sighs> and that really bothered me because that one um, they explicitly say that we use this data for quotes. Scoring, and so we might provide some score about how likely you are to pay. For instance, on their website, it says we might provide this to a hospital because they might want to know whether when you come in you have a willingness to pay. And I didn't really want a hospital to have really wrong data and then <sighs> not treat me. Absolutely. No. So it was really um, surprising to me how widely varied my data was, and it made me think that be, that there's not, because people can't see their data, there's no accountability. They don't have to make it right. How would the buyers know, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I've had so many victims of criminal identity theft. They can't get a job, and they don't know why. And even though they're supposed to be able to get a, a copy of their, their background check, often they don't, especially one of my recent clients who um, worked in the airport at LAX, and he couldn't get We had to do a Freedom of Information Act request to get his background check when he was told that he was losing his job. He was he was literally fired. And it took us over a year to get this background check. And um, it was he was a victim of identity theft. Another guy stole his identity and committed these crimes. And yeah, it was just horrible. I mean, it's and the problem is there's hundreds of companies that do background checks. So how would you even know where to go to find out which one they're using? Exactly. This is why you're supposed to be able to in California, which is, you know, we're pretty privacy conscious out here. And um, we do have a law that if you allow a background check, you check the box and they must give you a copy of it. No matter what, whether or whether oh, you we don't, don't get, have that. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. And the Fair Credit Reporting Act does say that you, you know, you can get a copy of the credit report if you're denied the job, but yes. the uh, consumer report, which also is a background check. But there are real problems with uh, background checks because we don't have the same kind of uh, protections like we do with the credit reporting agencies. So, yeah, it's it's really scary. I wanted to ask you, Julie, I want to just mention your book again because it is so wonderful. We are speaking today with uh, Julia Agwin, who's also going to be speaking this week at the International Association of Privacy Professionals annual summit in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to get to see her, and I'm very excited and meet her in person because she's wonderful. But she wrote this new book called Dragnet Nation, A Quest for Privacy, Security, and Freedom in a World of Relentless Surveillance. Julia, what did you find most surprising when you were doing all your research? I found most surprising, actually, this is sort of strange, but I actually found it most surprising how much I was able to convince my kids to care about privacy. Really? (laughs) Yes, which everyone says is the most impossible task, but it turns out that kids do care about privacy, 
but they care about privacy from me. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they don't want me surveilling them. Right, right. So once I figured that out, I actually could get them on board with privacy. They understood the concept. I think we often forget as adults that that was our big issue of privacy when we were young, and now our issues are employers and you know health insurers and the NSA or or, or Google, whatever it is, but. For kids, it's actually usually their parents. They don't. They want to share with their peers, but they want to make sure your parents aren't listening in. And so, I was really pleased that I was able to get them. My daughter started a password business, so I, t- I taught really? her about the importance <laughs> of strong passwords, and I showed her a technique for making strong passwords, which basically involves rolling the dice and then using the numbers you get to pick words out of a, a dictionary where all the words are numbered. And that allows you to pick real dictionary words, but they're not words you would normally think of. And that you can string together. So my passwords are stringed together five words from the dictionary, which are very long and very strong, but they're also, I can remember them. So I hired her to make passwords for me because I didn't want to roll the dice so many times. So she does it. She charges a dollar a password. (laughs) And so many of our relatives and friends have been buying them, and she really loves it. Oh, that is great. That's that's cute. Yeah, I I know how you feel about that. My kids, you know, also being a privacy person and one who experienced identity theft and you know was on TV and testified on all this. That you would think my kids would be really good, but um, they they are pretty good. But it's funny when you talk about, uh, for example, Facebook. My twenty eight year old daughter, who actually has written articles with me on privacy, uh, she won't let me. Uh, she's my friend. <laughs> Yeah, right, because that's their, that's their privacy issue. We all have different privacy issues, and I think that's one of the challenges about talking about privacy is that everyone has a different issue, but, but everyone can sort of understand at the core that the idea is there are definitely situations, everyone has a situation in life where they want to have a conversation with one person, but that doesn't mean we want to share it with the whole world, and whether that's you know something you have on a website for people with similar diseases or whether it's something... Yeah. Just uh, in communication with your boss or whatever it is, but we can all understand that, and we need to find better ways to segment those parts of our lives so that they're not immediately public to everyone. Yeah. Well, speaking about all that, like what your daughter is doing with the passwords, what are some easy things that I know you have this in your book? What are some easy things that my listeners can do to protect themselves from these dragnets? I think some of the easiest things are um, to use software to make your web browsing safer. So on my website, I I have a post called How to More Safely Browse the Web. But the two quick highlights are encrypt all of your Internet connections using a tool called HTTPS Everywhere and to block online ad tracking. I'm not necessarily saying block ads, but just the technology that follows you around um, can be blocked. And I use something called Disconnect. Some people like Ghostry, but there's software out there that will block that kind of tracking. And those are some really easy things. Another really easy thing that I think is important is to have better passwords. So two things. One is use a password manager if possible. One password, LastPass, KeepPass, there's many of them out there. And you can use them to generate strong passwords for you because studies have shown that you're not the only one who can't think of any passwords. None of us can, right? So let's admit that we can't think of them and have some other entity do the work for us. Yes. And then, but then there are some passwords I don't think you should put into those password managers. I personally don't put my email or my banking 
and I, I build really strong passwords using this technique my daughter uses, but for anyone building a strong, if you're going to do one good password, please make it your email because that can be the one used to reset all your other accounts. And the most important factor is length. Whatever size password you want to make, double it, right? So yes, 30, yes. 30 characters long is awesome. Yeah. And Gmail will let you do that. A lot of the email programs will let you have a very long password. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, something for me as being a lawyer, I yesterday I freaked out because one of my clients sent me um, the uh, as insurance, they had a beneficiary form. And of course, guess what it had on that beneficiary form that she filled out and sent to me embedded right into the email. Your it social. had not only her social, her birthday, her children, everything. <laughs> right. Okay. It was just everything. I totally, you know, I encrypt everything that I send to them and they have a password. And so um, I I freaked out, called her immediately and left her a message and said, look, I don't want you to freak out, but this is what you did. I just deleted it. You got to delete it. And you got to have your husband delete it because he also got, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was like, this is the thing. People are unconscious. They put stuff in emails without encryption. And so that was just the only other thing I wanted to add is there's easy encryption software. I mean, you can even encrypt with Word, right? Or you can encrypt, I use Adobe Professional just because it's easy for me. But that is really, people will put stuff into email. People will write me and put their social right in the middle of their, their email. Right. Yes, that's definitely something I recommend nobody ever do. <laughs> I know. Well, we are really out of time. I want you to give your blog website, and I want to meet you this week. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Uh, you uh, anyone can- Wonderful, and it was so fun to talk to you. I can't wait to meet you later this week, Julia. Have a wonderful week. Great. Thanks okay. for having me. Alrighty. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org and the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.